Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. If you want to follow along, you can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1775 from the book of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you're new, we're in our second week in um, this series on Ephesians, which is a letter in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, hence the title. And I said the first week that the structure of Paul's epistles are often um, really thick doctrine for a few chapters, and then really thick application for a few chapters, which can lead some people to be like, oh man, it's going to be so heady for a while. Well, sort of, but just remember— <clears throat> that being able to apply truths is a mark of being mature or being an adult. Right? If you understand a concept, you can apply it in a thousand different ways. If somebody literally has to tell you exactly how to apply a concept, that's actually, that's actually kind of a mark of childhood. It doesn't mean you're stupid. There's a certain way of thinking where you hear something, you take it, and you say, okay, where does this go? How should this be used? What does it mean? What are the implications of it? Right? so that you know how it's supposed to form you and prepare you. Because if you don't think that way, it doesn't matter if you come to church or not. Life is always going to be surprising you and sneaking up on you and messing with you. Because you'll never be ready for it. Because you're not thinking, where does this go? How do I use this? What does it mean? Does that make sense? So as we go through this section of Ephesians, don't let yourself be like, well, hopefully Nick will get some applications at the end. No. Everything in the text and in the Bible is useful for you. Right? Hopefully that's—hopefully that's helpful. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, the first verse here in verse 7 says, In him, that's in the one he loves, which is Jesus the Christ, in him we have redemption. It's the first line. In him we have redemption. And it goes on to kind of explain that redemption. And um, that's a completely true idea to base a sermon off of. I don't think it's nearly aggressive enough. Um, but it's partly aggressive because uh, in some ways we, um, we don't realize that the word redemption is actually a slavery li liberty word. So uh, we tend to think of redemption like, I'm going to buy this 1950s car that'll look so great when I have it all fixed up, right? And so I'm like going to redeem it, you know, or something like that. Or one of the, the ways we use it now actually is like pawn shops where you'll go and like sell your guitar because you have some debt for street racing or something. I don't know. There's a lot of that in this church. You just don't know about it. And, um, and like, and then you, but then you have to go buy it back, right? You have to redeem it. And so uh, th that word actually comes from the ancient context of people being enslaved. They can't buy their freedom. They've fallen into slavery for some one reason or another. And somebody else, usually a family member, it was actually called a kinsman redeemer is the word often used because who else is going to pay your debts when they don't get anything for it? right? Somebody else might pay your debts so that you can become their slave, but who's going to pay your debts just because you're nice or something? Nobody, right? Except it was the responsibility of your closest family members to pay your debt if they could. It was their moral responsibility because if they're screwed up, I mean, besides them to blame, you're next, right? So, um, you know, maybe you should, you should get in there, right? Um, but in, in the gospel, when Paul says Jesus is our redemption— it therefore presumes a slavery in us. Does that make sense? 
that there is a debt and there is a slavery that we can't pay. That's that's why we required the redemption of God. And the only thing that would cause you to redeem someone, if somebody needs to be redeemed, if somebody is enslaved because of debt, there is nothing profitable about getting them. The only context in the Bible where somebody would redeem somebody other than a family member was if it was like a really cute female slave and you wanted to marry her. Right? So you wanted her beauty and her fertility for yourself, and so you'd pay for that. That's it. Other than that, you better hope in your brother or your uncle, right? And so the only reason you would redeem somebody who isn't beautiful, because we're not morally beautiful to the perfectly righteous God, right? And who isn't rich and who can't do anything for you is for love. You just—you just want to. It just tears you up that they're in that situation. You just want them out of it, and you want to help, and you've got the money, and so you just do it because you want to. And that's what it says happened, that in love, God sent the one he loves. The Father sent the Son for us to redeem us, right? Now, to get a little bit more aggressive, the very next words are, in his blood, right? In his blood. Which tends to make modern American Western-ish people pretty uncomfortable. Um, back in the day, like when church growth— It seems like the colors are weird over there. Okay, anyway. Look over there. It, back in the day, um, there's this place called the Crystal Cathedral. Most of you are probably too young to know about this thing, but back in the 70s, there was this guy named Robert Schuller. He was the first big church growth guy, and he was trying to reach kind of secular Californians, and he's like, listen, ain't no talk of blood is going to get these secular Californians into this church right? And so what he decided to do, because he was, he was putting church on TV, and he was trying to attract thousands of people to this place, and it, it worked for like 25 years, okay? But one of the decisions he made was, we're going to remove all the blood language. We're going to get rid of all the blood, all that stuff about the blood of Jesus. We're going to just get rid of that, use a completely different language. It's kind of self-helpy, but he was, he was trying to figure out a way to reach really secular people, because he recognized that when people hear a reference to the blood of Jesus, It sounds really weird to them, right? But Christian hymnody is full of that stuff. Full of it, right? So this hymn was actually at my wife's and my wedding, which is probably not particularly sensitive to uh, unchurched people who are at our wedding, right? The first verse is, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And Lexi wore this, like, bright red dress at our wedding. I'm just kidding. She didn't. That's That's a joke. And— it's like, just like the language is like, like imagining a fountain, like a nice fountain, like in Rome or something, full of blood that was drawn from the veins of the God-man, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And like, to be cleansed, you like jump and you are plunged under it. You like get in the blood, you get it in your hair and everything, and it just, it makes you clean. And like, I literally, to get the little like blood fountain little bit there, I had to go to black, the Black Sabbath Hard Rock website to get—Christians have not produced any fountain filled with blood art, turns out. And yet, yeah, my sister-in-law, Amanda, grew up going to a United Methodist church that did not preach the gospel. I don't know for unbelief or incompetence, but they, it was all like kind of, let's all love each other, self-helpy kind of sermons. But they did, they hadn't changed—there was, there was enough tradition, they hadn't changed the hymns. So it was all—this is the old Methodist hymn. It's all the old Methodist hymns. It's just—they're they're just as bloody as you can be, man. It's like—I mean, it's like hymns from the octagon. I mean, it's just the blood of Jesus everywhere. And so she grew up hearing those, and what she said was, it was the only thing in church that interested me at all. Because, yeah, blood is really weird, but at least it's serious. Right? Because— you know, part of our big emotional objection to the, all this talk of blood is essentially, A, it feels primitive. It feels like some kind of like ancient totemistic, like people like cutting out people's hearts to the sun god and like sacrificing 14-year-old virgins in the Chilean ice and like this somehow that'll placate the gods. It feels like this sort of like primitive fear-based sort of thing somehow we have in our minds. And then secondly, it, it feels like really violent. Like how do you get the blood out? Probably some kind of violence, right? And so we just— kind of shudder at that. And the way we justify that psychologically is we generally think of ourselves as sophisticated. Right? We're sophisticated. We don't believe in that kind of ancient primitive tomfoolery. And we don't believe in violence, like accomplishing anything. What does violence accomplish? Right? Okay. 
here's what I want to submit to you, this idea. Um, are you sure that we're sophisticated rather than just sterilized? I mean, we've really, we, there's still blood in the world, y'all. We just have separated ourselves from it, right? Like, it used to be when somebody got cut, you had one injury. Now you get two because somebody faints and gets a concussion at the sight of blood because they've never seen it. You know, it's like, oh my heavens, they clutch their pearls and fall over, you know? Like, people just don't see blood, right? Or like, or, I mean, when was the last time you were like trying to scrub blood out of your cuticles, Right? I mean, I don't mean when you, like, move or help the friend move a body, but I mean just like, like, I'm a hunter, right? It happens every year for me a few times at least. Like, I kill something, and like, its blood is everywhere, and I had cut it up to make food out of it, right? Like, we don't do that anymore. You just go to the store. You know, we have kids in school. They think eggs come from the store. Like, they think that that is the terminal causality of the little, like, oblong, spherish thingies. That, like, they're somehow produced in the back room somewhere. Right? We don't fight our own wars, right? We try to get people who aren't going to college to go do that or something, right? Like, you go, you go, let's get the—we like the oceans here. You go fight the wars. So like—and then, you know, we don't—all the security stuff is handled by professionals. We don't do any of that stuff. We don't even have fistfights anymore. You know, it wasn't that long ago where, like, if somebody insulted your wife in public, you would go and pop them in the face, right? I'm not sure this is better than that. Okay? Says the guy who believes in fistfights, who's, but who's never been in one. You know, like, I think, like, there's, there's a certain amount of, like, stupidity to our, like, antiseptic, like, don't— Like, when I was in, when I was pastoring in the South, every man over the age of 48 had been in a fistfight with their dad. Like, every single one. Like, there was some point when they were an unruly teenager, they're like, son, if you're gonna live in this house, you're gonna respect me. If you don't, we're gonna go out in the front yard, we're gonna sort this out. And then they did. And there was always blood. Right? And mom was like, I can't watch this. Then she'd look out the window, you know? <clears throat> I don't—I don't want to go fight a war, okay? And I don't want to get in fistfights, and I don't want to—well, I like hunting, you know? But I don't—I don't want a more violent world. I want a more peaceful world. But I also do not want a mistake— the sterility of my life for sophistication. I don't want to— I don't want to mistake that, that I've protected myself from hard things by the way we've structured our lives so I can just spend my life doing one thing I'm good at and then being a good consumer and then going into my little house with the air conditioning and shutting the garage door and only being around my friends and not dealing with any conflict. I don't want to pretend that that's actually being bigger, stronger, broader, deeper, more meaningful. I don't— I don't want to pretend that. And you see, one of the things about the blood of Jesus is that it cuts to the chase. It makes things real serious, real fast. And we want to believe that, like, like, we don't believe in any of that kind of stuff anymore. Well, sort of, but, like, be careful about the primitive thing. Because there's a lot of things that are from the ancient times that are exactly the same in terms of their meaning right now. Right? Like, we are the people who are primitive in relationship to, to romantic love. We're the people that think there's nothing to sex but running around and like placating your neurons and all of these love feelings, blah, blah, blah. You can go back to the ancient world and you will find some of the most beautiful love poems about the spiritual, moral, and metaphorical depth of interpersonal romantic love. We're, we're less sophisticated than the Greeks. Right? Or even, even in relationship—think th about this. We say the sun rises and falls. Does that make us all primitive? Because we don't be like, well, you know, the rotating of the Earth's axis in relationship to the atmospheric conditions was very lovely this morning. Like, do, are we less sophisticated because we don't do that? Or is it—do we all know what the symbol of a sunrise and a sunset mean, and we would be idiotic to switch that symbol for literalism? Part of the failures of modern life is we— we somehow always want everything to be kind of literal, even though we are metaphorical creatures. Like, how often do you actually say brain when you mean mind? When we say brain in the modern culture, we're like, well, this is in my brain right now. It's, no, it's not in your brain. Your brain doesn't have sentences or pictures. Your, your, your brain has chemicals. 
that your mind transfers and you don't understand the mystery of consciousness. And when you say brain, you're referring to a mysterious thing symbolically that you don't understand, but you feel like you scientifically understand it because you said brain. That is as superstitious as sacrificing a virgin on the hills of Chile. It's just a more sophisticated kind of of superstition. The reality is, is that all of human life has had symbols that have run through them throughout all of time. And all human beings have been transferring symbols into totems or, or um, primitive forms of idolatry because we want things to mean less and be easier. I was having trouble explaining the difference between a totem and a symbol last service. And one of, one of these guys who's been a Christian for years was like, yeah, you know, like the snake in the desert. Like the, it was like the bronze snake. I was like— Oh, no, duh. Now, you might not be thinking, no, duh, but it's my job to know these things, so it was no, duh, for me, okay? So in Numbers, I think it's Numbers 25, the Israelites sin against God in a pretty terrible way, and God's punishment to them is he sends poisonous snakes in to bite them, and some of them die because they've been bitten. And so they cry out to God for help, and God tells Moses to make this bronze snake and lift it up high enough so you could see it from anywhere in the camp. And he says, if any Israelite is bitten by one of these snakes, let them look at the bronze snake, and they'll live. Now, there was never any magic to it. It was an act of faith. When you look at the bronze snake, it's an act of faith, and then God would heal you. Nobody thought that the snake healed them, right? It was a a command of God, and it was action. That was—the snake was a symbol, right? Now, hundreds of years later, when they should have been much more sophisticated, in the reign of Hezekiah, over time, people had lost track of the moral seriousness of the symbol of the snake. We should trust and obey God and trust that he will heal us. It had become a kind of superstitious religion. They called the snake Hebrew for the bronze snake god, and they were burning incense to it, incense to it, and they were worshiping it as a kind of idol and god, and nobody knew what the symbol meant. They just thought that there was a snake god that might help us if we burn incense to it. Right? The more primitive, more totemistic, more shallow thing came hundreds of years after the more sophisticated actual symbol that God had given. There's all kinds of symbols in human life that run all the way through. And the issue is not sophistication, unsophistication, but meaning versus idolatry. Right? And blood is like that. Even today, we still use it. Right? I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this job. Really? Did you actually bleed? Like, it's one thing if, like, a Marine says, I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this job. They, they probably literally did all three literally numerous times, right? But when, like, an accountant says, like, I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this job, you're like, I don't even know what that means. Like, you worked hard. It means I worked hard. That's what I mean. I gave the best years of my life, and I worked hard. That's what it means, right? And it, we all understand what it means. I gave my life for this. I gave my vitality to it. I feel like I poured myself into it into a way that it owes me something back. The meaning of my existence and being was so connected to this thing that it, it infused and it demanded a moral relationship between us. And I, get, I gave my—I obligated my life to this, and it should be obligated in some way back to me. My blood. If I deceived you into something, and something terrible happened to you, you might say— my blood is on your hands. It's a weird saying that we use now in our little sophisticated age. Do you like this hip shake? We, we say that, right? We say like, we say their blood is on their hands or blah, 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 meaning like you're guilty. What does that mean? It means you can pretend you didn't have a part in it. You can say you didn't have a part in it. You can behave like it doesn't, but listen, Everybody can see it. It's in your cuticles. You can't brush it off. It's there. You're stained with it. Right? We, we have other things, too. The point is, is that we know that that's true of us. We know if we lose enough blood, we're going to die. We know that in a symbolic sense, what it, what it says in Leviticus 3,000 years ago is true. The life is in the blood, but not just the physical life. It's a symbol for everything related to life. It's moral meaning. It's spiritual meaning. Our being, our existence, and how it interacts with everything else. Our blood is related to it. And so God used 
blood as a symbol to demonstrate how we relate to one another morally and spiritually in terms of our responsibility and our destiny, what our being in our life means. And it's just as valid today as it has ever been. And it means exactly the same thing as it has always meant. We are dealing with meaning that is over our heads. It's about blood. Right? So let's go through some of the things in this passage that kind of relate to this and work it out. The first is, is that the redemption is in his blood. Let me just, for some, some of you haven't read up very much of the Bible, let me just give you a spattering of New Testament texts that give you a sense of this language, right? So one is Revelation 5, 9. Right? So why is Jesus given authority to all the things that happen in the end? It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, that's you is Jesus. The, the lamb. To take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed or redeemed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. So the language of redemption, redemption is what happens when you pay a ransom so that somebody can be redeemed out of the state of slavery or bondage, right? Let me give you a couple more. Like nine. Just kidding. First Peter 1, 2, right at the beginning of the epistle. To God's elect, strangers in the world, You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. What would you buy somebody out of slavery with? Silver or gold, right? And he's like, that stuff is nothing. It has no permanence, right? Not with— Perishable things such as silver or gold, you were redeemed or ransomed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of, of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Colossians 1, 19 and 23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood— Shed on the cross, Romans 5, 8 to 10. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified or made pardoned without debt, right? In a free stance, justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Romans 3, 23, 27. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. 1 John 1, 1, 7 to 2, 2. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another— and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He, verse 2 in chapter 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or you can look at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, whole chapters about the meaning of the sacrificial system of the blood. Now, why is that so important? One of the reasons it's so important is because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before him that defines his meaning. And what defines the meaning of his blood is all of the sacrificial system that he fulfills. Whether it's Passover, where the Jewish people put the blood of the lamb on the door so that God's angel of wrath passed over them, or whether it was all the sacrifices that are cataloged in Leviticus 1 through 5, where God talks about how these sacrifices were symbols of forgiveness. Right? It says in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament— that the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sin. They weren't totems. They weren't magic. It's not like you can undo human sin with a death of an animal. That was never the case. They all had to point forward to the death of God's sacrifice in his son. Does that make sense? And so the sacrificial system— is how and why we understand what the work of Jesus is like. Now, people really struggle with that sometimes because they say, but Nick, how, how does that work? I mean, how is it right if person A commits a crime and they deserve a certain kind of punishment for that crime, and then person B, who is innocent, takes that punishment? That seems unjust. 
because an innocent person has now taken a penalty, and an unjust person has not received a penalty. That sounds like the opposite of justice, right? Makes sense. That's one of the reasons why justice has always been framed throughout the history of the world, not just in terms of the objective categories of punishment, but also in terms of debt. So, for example, if somebody gets out of prison, let's say they were in prison for a couple years for jacking a bunch of cars, right? And they feel like somebody's giving them a hard time, and they're like, you shouldn't be giving me a hard time because I've, what? Paid my debt to society, right? Are they right? Yes, they are, kind of, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis years ago wrote an essay called The Therapeutic Theory of Justice because Britain was moving towards this like, well, you know, crime is like a psychological disorder and we really should be counseling people and rehabilitating them. And he thought that was a horrific, like, terrible idea, right? And the reason he thought, okay, you'd be like, why is that terrible? That sounds really nice. Like, put them in the hands of doctors instead of jailers. Well, it is nice, except doctors are sinners too. And the, the problem with that is, is like, if you take somebody into custody— to heal them, when are you ever done, fee- like, fooling with them? Right? Only when they're like you. When you've decided they're enough like you think they should be, then they're healed, and then they're free of you. Listen, I would just rather there be an objective amount of time I'm being punished for, frankly. And it's one of the reasons why we can't forgive people who go to prison. Because we don't think of it that way. If somebody jacks my car, and he goes to prison for nine months or whatever, if that's what it's worth— then when he gets out, he went to jail for eight months for jacking my car. It's over. Right? He probably should work for six months to pay me back for my car. That would probably be more just. The biblical system where you had to pay somebody back and then add 20% to disincentivize you from doing it in the future was probably a better system. But of course, we're so sophisticated now we have it though, right? But you, you see, we say that even now we think in terms of debt, and we, we think of that in terms of just natural forgiveness. Like, if I'm really awful to my wife, let's say I— I just treat her really terribly in some kind of dispute, right? I can go back to her later and say, baby, I'm really sorry I treated you like that. I, I'm a big dork, and I'm really sorry. Would you please forgive me? What is the proposal I've just made, right? The proposal I've just made is, I admit that I'm wrong, and I admit that there's a cost for me being wrong. Will you please not extract that cost from me? That's basically what I've just said. Will you instead not extract that cost from me? So who pays it? Right? Now, in the most literal, simplistic sense, in that context, the answer is she does. Because there is a debt. There is a cost. There is a right punishment. There is something that ought to be extracted. And if she doesn't extract it, it's because she's writing it off. That is, it's on her. So I'm asking her to forgive my sin at her expense. Now the problem is that, that that can never be the complete way we deal with stuff, right? There's a reason why God said, listen, you all just need to forgive each other, right? Now, first of all, we're too wicked for that system because we'd all just like rack up more. But in addition to that, that's really not how what the world is. First of all, when I'm treating my wife that way and my 11-year-old son is listening in the other room, we don't even realize where I'm making him more cynical about marriage and more cynical about male-female relationships, and I'm damaging him in ways that neither of us even realize is happening, right? I may be making her more skittish about coming to me honestly in the, in the future. I'm confirming my arrogance a little bit more. There is more happening than just a simple transaction morally. And all of those have moral implications. And so every one of our sins radiates out like chaos theory into the world, and we are a little bit accountable for all of it. So there is just no way to adjudicate forgiveness at all. All you can do is your part. You can forgive what you know. And that's what God demands of all of us. You've been forgiven much, therefore you need to forgive. And all—but all the forgiving we can do is the penalties and moral debt and the enmity that we know about. Right? That's it. But you didn't just—we didn't just sin against that other person into chaotically radiating other evils we know nothing about. We've sinned against ourselves. Listen, you may not— have wanted to have been born with the image of God, but you were. The reason you can even be self-conscious enough to want or not want to have been created in the image of God is because you were created in the image of God. And therefore, you bear the moral responsibility of living out the image of God, which we're not doing very well. Neither us, nor our forefathers, nor likely our progeny. 
And so there's an enormous amount of guilt just wrapped up in our own personal failures to be what we were made to be. Right? And then there's the fact that all this offense is first and foremost to the one who owns everything and has commanded how everything should be done, which is God himself. And there's nothing to be done for that. Right? And listen, I know that there are plenty of people— some people who get frustrated, some people who stop going to, well, at least this church, because they don't like how much I talk about our depravity, how much, how sinful we are. But listen, I very firmly believe, one, it's the truth. Two, it will make you love Jesus so much more, and you'll enjoy God so much more, and you'll be humbler, and your life will be so much—you'll enjoy other people so much more when you're humble, and you'll enjoy every good thing in your life. You'll be so much more full of thankfulness. You'll be so much happier. But you know what else is so important? Because I've heard people say, you know, it really hurts the children's self-esteem. It does, because they, they already feel bad about themselves. There's already difficult things. And then you say they're sinners. They're just these terrible sinners. And then they feel bad about themselves. And, okay, fair enough. Um, sort of. But <clears throat> I, I don't want them to esteem themselves. I want them to know what they're worth. Okay? I don't, because we all know our self-esteem is a lie. That's one of the reasons why it doesn't really predict our behaviors. Okay? Plus, all that research was wrong. We found out. 15 years ago, and we still haven't been told, unless you actually read the literature. The issue is this. Understanding the depth of our depravity, our real sinfulness, is the gateway to understanding who and what you really are. Not that you're a monster. We are, but that's not the point. When you find out that you're a monster, you realize you were always as strong as Godzilla. You've just been using the strength for the wrong thing. When you find out you're a conniving little witch, you realize you've always been smart enough to do amazingly complicated things. And you could have used that for good. You just haven't been. But you're still that smart. And if you repent, you would still be that smart. You realize that like half the things you concoct with your wicked use of your creativity are actually really creative and awful in their creativity. But you realize you were made to be that creative. The only creativity you've ever been diligent about is sin. And you're like, oh man. And you begin to realize, actually, when you see how deep the evil goes, you begin to realize how consequential a being you really are. And you don't before that. Part of secularity is to believe we're much less than we are. That we're a, we're a bundle of neurons. That we're just— the product of chance. Our lives have no meaning or no destiny. What we do isn't really that important. People don't really change. What you did was based on, like, environmental or neurotic effects that you can't even control. We can make things a little better with pharmaceuticals, but that's really all we can hope for. And that lets you off the hook for everything. But in letting yourself off the hook, you have to believe you're less. The only way you can get yourself off that hook is if you don't weigh very much. But when the, when the weight— of the ugliness of the depravity of the human heart weighs in on you so that you feel like you can hardly breathe. It's partly at that moment that you realize that you are an infinitely consequential being. You are so consequential. You are worth damning. Think about that. God, God doesn't damn worms. He does, like there's no reference anywhere in the Bible to God being upset about the behavior of anything but human beings. And angels and demons. That's it. Right? Not even dogs. Like, my dog does things vindictively on purpose. Like, she sometimes deserves the wrath of God. But she's not going to get it. She's a dog. <clears throat> but when that happens, when that moment comes where you realize the weight of sin, and then you realize how much you matter, how, how deep these things run, how much you're capable of, that's also the reason—the moment you realize you're completely ruined, right? So then what? Well, praise be to the glorious Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, who elect us and predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight, who has sought to adopt us as his sons and daughters, and who has freely given in the one he loves redemption in his blood, which is the forgiveness of— of sins. And you might believe at the depth of that moment of recognizing the horror of your depravity, you may say, like, how could I possibly believe that the just God would forgive this? And the answer is, because there was blood! That's why! 
Because it's serious. Because it's life itself. And when you see that the sacrifice of the Christ was that serious, it meets the seriousness of real depravity. And the very moment you feel weight, you feel free. And you're like a Godzilla who can fly. And it's awesome. And you're ready to like actually step forward into the life of the Spirit. And to live differently and see things differently. And it's amazing because all that horror is wiped away. But the realization of who you're meant to be can stay and broaden and deepen and expand and develop. And the moment that happens, it says in these verses, the sealing power and presence of the Spirit comes and helps. Right? Okay. What does forgiveness of sins mean? Right? I, I said some stuff about this already. Do you know that the, the verse on the Liberty Bell, Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty to all the earth? That's actually the, the same word. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same word that is translated liberty here is translated forgiveness here. It doesn't just simply mean, yeah, it's okay. It's fine. God says it's fine. No, it's not that. It's liberation. This verse is from the Old Testament where every 50 years— there was this moment in the year of Jubilee where these trumpets would be blown. And when those trumpets were blown, everyone was free and everybody got a destiny back. So if you were a slave, not only at that moment were you free permanently and your debts were completely gone, but you got to go back to your ancestral land and it now belonged to you again. So you didn't just get freed from slavery, but you were given back your original destiny. Do you see the, do you see the symbol here? Similarly in Christ— this liberty that is given to us in the forgiveness of sins liberates us from the debt and the slavery of sin, and it sets us to liberty. Liberty to what? To live out our destiny, the Spirit-empowered image of God in us. Right? And then it says that it happened according to God's lavish grace, right? It says—sorry. It says that this was done in accordance with the riches of God's grace— that he lavished on us, right? That word doesn't show up very much in the Bible. Um, wherever it shows up, the word translated lavish, it means extra, right? Now th think about this. Why do, you, why do you do extra? In Mark's gospel, there's this place where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And there's 5,000 men. There's probably more than that. There might be as many as 10,000 people. And somebody has a few fish and a few loaves of bread, and they bring them to Jesus, and Jesus blesses them, and he multiplies them to feed people. And when they're done, the disciples actually go around, and they pick up all the extra pieces of bread. And it fills 12 basketfuls. Now, <clears throat> a lot of people think there's some allegorical meaning in the 12 basketfuls and the 12 apostles. And I'm sure they all ate a whole basketful of bread because carbs are great. But the point is this. Twelve basketfuls of extra bread is like 50 times more bread than Jesus started with before he fed five to 10,000 people. Now think about that. Why? Right? It's a divine hospitality. He wanted everybody to eat their fill. And so he didn't want anybody to think that there might be a limited amount. And so there was all this extra. Right? I don't know what the perfect reason was, but there was extra. It was l lavish. It was way more than what's necessary, right? And so, I mean, think about your, li your life. Like, if— now, some of you, like, you're not—you don't put out flowers when people come over to the house. You may have married somebody who does, and that's why you have marriage problems. But, like, there—I mean, there's a whole group of humanity where, like, they, they make things nice. They want to make people feel welcome. They go the extra mile. One of the most humiliating memories of my entire life, top five, is um, my wife and I getting engaged. Me, me asking my wife to marry me. And the reason for that is, I won't go into the details right now. <clears throat> I didn't do, I just didn't do enough. For 20 years, I've been telling guys that look like they're not going to do enough. Dude, you need to do more. You need to make this really special. I don't care if you don't have a lot of money. There are ways to make it way special. Do not fail at this moment, right? Because— we, the reason we do more is to show people how we feel. That's why we do more. 
That's why we put out like the nice napkins and then we put the tablecloth on and we do all the things. Except in this case, God wasn't being lavished with tulips or tablecloths or even bread. He was being lavished with his blood. For, for you. It's being lavish. There was more than enough. There's this old dispute between um, theological types uh, called the Calvinist-Arminian controversy. And one of the main arguments is whether or not Jesus' atonement, his death on the cross, was limited. Right? One of the old Calvinist sayings is the limited atonement, that Jesus died for the elect and only for the elect. And I know this is going to sound really arrogant because I'm going to essentially say this is the solution to a 500-year-old argument. But I, I really think there is a—I I really think there is a solution to it. For, did Jesus die for just the elect? The answer is, of course he did. Because in John 3, it literally says that to reject the grace of God is, is a damning thing. Like, it increases your guilt. And it says in John 3, 17, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. And he didn't come into the world to condemn people who are condemned further. And so in his mind, he didn't come, he didn't say, I'm going to save the elect, and I'm going to damn the damned worse. He came in the world just to save those he came to save. But the objection is, wait, are you saying that the death of Jesus, the God-man, who could pay the debts of all who believed, didn't actually die a death that could pay for everyone? And the answer is, of course he died a death that could pay for everyone. If, if God was like only at this amount, there would have been extra bread. Like God, God is lavish. It's, uh, there's always extra. There's too much. Like it's not—Jesus scorned the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. It's like, it was a small thing for him to pay for anybody who would believe. And for anybody at all. I can't tell you how the metaphysics of that works out, but what I can tell you is— that everything that God has done for us ever in the history of all of existence has always been lavish. Right? And in this case, he has been lavish with his blood for you. Right? And then it says he's done this with all wisdom and understanding. Now, there's a little bit of controversy in the translation of this. So if you look at verse 8, it says that he lavished on us, period, capital with, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And so the the new NIV translates lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding as wisdom and understanding going with his revelation of his will in his mystery, which is something else. But I, for a number of Greek syntactical reasons that I'm probably not going to get into right now, I think it's much more likely that it's supposed to go with the former thing about him lavishing his grace on us. And actually, the earlier version of the NIV tra translated it that way, and the English Standard Version also translates it that way. So it's not like I'm making this up out of thin air. That is, that when God chose to lavish his grace on us in the blood of his Son, and don't think that Jesus didn't, like, oh, he did it through his Son. No, listen, you need to think of Jesus as an adult son, okay? Think of Jesus as an adult son he wanted to come to save us as much as the Father designated to send him. It's a question of roles, not a question of like, well, God didn't want to do it himself, so he sent the Son. No, the whole conception that the second person of the Trinity is God's Son is not that he's a child. It's that he's exactly like the Father. That's what Son means in the, in the ancient world. A Son is a duplication of the Father. Does that make sense? And so he came fully wanting to do what he was sent to do. So don't let that mess with you. And he came knowing exactly what it would cost him. He knew every insult he was going to receive. He knew every lash of every whip. He knew every time he was going to be scorned. He knew every betrayal. He knew exactly what it would cost. And he knew exactly who he was saving. Right? Like, everything about you that you either are or ought to be ashamed of, he knew. He even, knows, he even knows about your future debaucheries that you would never even think you're going to do, but he knows about already. Ways in which your infirmities or your willfulness. He knows all that stuff. Which should be helpful because like when you, when you don't live beautifully, when you don't keep in step with the Spirit, and you feel like God must be really disappointed in you. Right? And that's a normal human experience. Yeah, well, you know, he, yeah, he's probably disappointed with that rep. 
you know, that, like that event. But this is the God who knew, knew you were going to do that last week. He, he knew all that stuff. And he gave his grace richly and lavishly to save you if you believe. And he did it so that you would be adopted as his child and so that you would also be progressively transformed. Does that make sense? Oh, I love the purring baby. I'm going to skip this one because of time. The, and the last one is he, it says three times that he did this for the praise of his glory. So there's, there's actually three verses in this passage that says the whole purpose of all this is for the praise of God's glorious grace or for his glory. The problem with the word glory is it's kind of like the word grace for us. It's like this religious word that doesn't mean anything, right? But what grace, what glory essentially is, is the union of God's love and his beauty such that it can be mutually appreciated and enjoyed eternally. Right? Think about it this way for a second. What things exist in which enjoying them has no extraction from them at all? That, you, that, they, that the more you partake in the pleasure, it actually becomes more pleasurable rather than less, extracts no resources from the pleasure, and can be mutually enjoyed by many simultaneously. It's not food, not sex, not self-righteousness. There's only a couple things. Love and beauty. That's it, man. That is it. So if you don't want to be a horrific moral trial to the world, what should you learn to fill yourself with? Love and beauty. If you fill yourself with anything else, you will be a parasite on the world. That's why God will not allow you to be like that forever, and he demands that you're not like that now. He wants to change you so that you exist in the consistent and constant mutual enjoyment of love and beauty forever. That is what the glory of God is. It is the apprehension of all of God's beauties, both his beauties of magnificence or size, and his, his beauties of goodness, all wrapped together in his character. We are the ones who need to be made lovely. God is already lovely. And us seeing and savoring that love and receiving that love forever increasingly. So that there's never any scarcity. There's only always ever abundance of pleasure. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be weird if every time somebody went to Yosemite and they looked at Half Dome and they said, God, that's beautiful. It crumbled a little bit. Or like every time they saw a sunset or sunrise, they're like, that's so beautiful. It got like a little blacker. Or like, it, it like hazed a little bit so you couldn't see it. They're like, every time, like if you were like a pretty girl and like some guy was like, she's so pretty, you like got a little uglier, you know? Or like you just, you got a little older, like you got two months older every time somebody thought you were pretty. Well, that'd be, you wouldn't like that, would you? It'd be bad. Part of the beauty of beauty is that our enjoyment of it isn't supposed to be extractional. But food is never going to be like that. You, go to the, you can go to the fridge five times in one NBA semifinals game, and you don't enjoy the fifth thing you eat like you enjoyed the first thing. It's worse for you. You're getting sick. You're eating stuff you shouldn't. Somebody else should have got those wings. You know, like, it's not, like, it's, it's not right. It's not full. It's not, it's not more. It's less. And you see, the whole point of all that God has done, it, it is to redeem you. It is to unfold the mystery of his plan. It is to put sin away forever. It is to judge sin in the blood of Christ so that God is just, even though he justifies those who have it. But all of it, the end game of all of it is pleasure. Don't you see? It's always been pleasure. It will always be pleasure. God is a hedonist at heart. He's just not a dumb one. He's not a parasitic one. He's not a vampire. He wants to make creatures of unspeakable beauty and glory and allow them to enjoy each other in love and beauty forever, ever increasing in their pleasure and enjoyment, never diminishing. And he knew it. He knew how it worked. It's obvious. Once you hear it, it's obvious. But look at how people behave and look at what we're told about ourselves. Just please yourself. Just do whatever pleases you. Just do whatever, whatever your truth is. 
which basically means listen to your stomach and do whatever jumps into your head that your body wants to indulge in at this second, which produces not just the horror of obesities and transactional relationships and high cholesterol and all that stuff, but worse, creatures that were made for beauty that can't even recognize it. Creatures that were made for love but can only devour other people and call it love. All of this, the invitation of Jesus for you to believe, for you to put your faith in his blood, to receive the liberation from the penalty of sin, that he gave lavishly out of grace with all wisdom and knowledge about what you're really like, all wisdom and knowledge. He determined to make you his son or his daughter. He determined to make you holy and blameless in his sight. It was all for the end of your eternal pleasure. And here's the application. Believe it. Believe the truth of the good news of that gospel. Believe it. Believe it a little deeper, a little more, with a little more courage, with a little more hope. Once we get to verse 15, that whole section is just basically Paul's like, all I do is pray for you that you would see this all deeper. That you would be able to understand the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of the love of God displayed in Christ Jesus and that it would affect you on the deepest possible level. Because if that happens, you will be infatuated with the beauty and love that is in the world and you will live totally differently. You will feel differently. You will act differently. You will love differently. You will hope differently. And if you've never done that for the first time, you need to believe in the blood of Jesus to save you and redeem you right now. And you do that by just telling him I was wrong. You were right. I receive it. Thank you so much. It's like that, but you can come up and pray with somebody afterwards. But if you're a Christian, how fast do you go from receiving the grace of God and living by mercy and thankfulness in the world to wanting justice for yourself just because somebody cut you off in traffic? Like, you and I who believe already have to believe again and higher and wider and deeper and longer. And when that happens, most of the other applications decide themselves. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though to our neighbors and sometimes to ourselves, your talk of the blood of your son shed on the cross, that someone could poetically refer to it as a fountain filled with blood, that if we plunge ourselves into, we'll lose all our guilty stains, that, that there is a horror in that. But at least it's serious. And Father, I pray that the seriousness of it would wake us up from our culture of distraction, our culture of consumption, and, and just feeding our flesh. And we pray that you'd carry us and draw us with the shocking words of blood beyond the simplistic distractions and the frothy, bubbly nothing around us that presents itself as substance and bring us in the heart of the truth about what we were meant to be, what we really are, even if it's down to the depths of understanding our depravity. And we pray that in there that you would help us find what you've meant us to be, who we really are, who Christ in us is meant to be, what it means to walk in the Spirit, and what it means to live by mercy for the praise of your glorious grace. Please include us in that more deeply, at least in our own minds. In Jesus' name.